Welcome, everybody. We're back at Dorothy's Place. We're sitting around that imaginary kitchen table for another afternoon of clarification of thought. <laughs> is that what we're going to do, Pete? here too? Yes. No, we're slowly clarifying it until the thought it's is It's taking a long clear. time, but yeah, no, it's very enjoyable. And we have a wonderful guest, and in fact, the first guest we've ever had who actually is going to be talking to us about Dorothy Day, the namesake of our podcast. So that is very cool. And that is D.L. Mayfield. Hi, D.L. Hi. Great to have you here. Let me tell everybody who you are. I'll read this like right off the back of the book. All right. <laughs> Let's uh, tell us the story. D.L. Mayfield is a writer, activist, and author of Assimilate or Go Home and The Myth of the American Dream. Her writing has appeared in publications such as McSweeney's, Sojourners, and the Washington Post. She has taught ESOL to immigrant and refugee populations in the U.S. with an emphasis on literacy instruction. And she lives on the outskirts of Portland, where she's trying very hard to be a good neighbor. Welcome. Yeah, I'm I'm so happy to be here. Uh, you Did you know that you're one of the few podcasts that have an image of Dorothy Day? <laughs> Oh, <laughs> on huh. the on the internet, you know, you guys, you guys have the corner. Well, that that on helps. It. That helps. Uh, <laughs> we're kind of low budget, so we have to have something. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. Good. That's that's good to know. And you know, one of the wonderful things is we're bringing you on now specifically because you have a book coming out called "Unruly Saint: Dorothy Day's Radical Vision and Its Challenge for Our Times." Mm -hmm. um, you know. Maybe a good opener is kind of what led you, what is your story that eventually led you to, uh, uh, you know, want to write a story of Dorothy Day? Yeah, I, I think um, I come from white evangelicalism, which is its own subculture within the United States. And I came to Dorothy because of a button I got at like a social justice Christian conference thing. And the button had a picture of a coat and it said, if you have two coats, you have stolen one from the poor. And it was attributed to someone named Dorothy Day. And I just loved that black and white thinking. And I was working with refugees and was learning all about how incredibly unequal my city of Portland was. And I only had one coat. So I was like, yes, this is it. Like, um, and, and growing up white evangelical, I was a pastor's kid. I was homeschooled. I went to Bible college to be a missionary. I did all the things you do when you take religion really seriously. And, and uh, so I took it all very seriously, including reading the words of Jesus and, and wanting to, you know, see that lived out. And so when I heard about Dorothy Day, I went to the library and got a copy of The Long Loneliness. I read it. And while I didn't understand all of it, because it really is like a spiritual memoir that's really centered in place and in her memories and this is from like the 20s 30s 40s 50s you know and, mm -hmm. and so uh, I didn't understand all of it but the title the long loneliness really stood out to me because I was incredibly lonely in white evangelicalism I, it's hard to explain the depths to which the past few decades of my life I would even say has just been one long long reckoning with me saying I thought, I thought we believed this, you guys. I thought we did want to be like Jesus. I, I thought we wanted to take the Sermon on the Mount seriously. I thought, I thought we want to take the Sermon on the Plain seriously. And 
And anytime I even brought that up, I was shamed. I was seen as a threat. You know, I was, I was seen as somehow anti-white evangelicalism. And, and that's just a lot to try and deal with. And wow. Dorothy gave me a way out. She made me feel less lonely, but also strengthened my resolve to say, you know, you can be a person of faith and uh, really be invested in the ethics of loving your neighbor today and listening to them, prioritizing what they say they need and listening to them. So that's this a long-winded version of how I came to love Dorothy. That's great. That's great. You know, you being a writer, would you agree, one of the kind of secret powers that Dorothy has is that she's a very good writer. You get drawn in. She's, I mean, she's more than a journalist. She's really a very good memoirist. And she was very modest about it, but it's, it's wonderful writing. Yeah, I think she's an incredible writer. And I was just on a Zoom call about Dorothy Day's canonization process. So she's in, you know, in the process to be a canonized saint in the Catholic Church. And I'm not a Catholic. So I just thought, oh, I want to learn more about this, you know. And one of the things they said was they had to send off so many boxes of paperwork because she was such a prolific writer and they needed to get it all, all you know to the vatican and it was like two-thirds of a ton of paper yeah, and my, wow. uh, my, my sister was at the mass right before they sent it off and they at the front it was in new york at the altar yeah. they laid out all the boxes yes. <laughs> they had to like seal amazing. them all with wax and ribbon and, and i'm yeah. so outside of the loop i'm just like what the what but i do love her writing. And when I actually, you know, I was super nervous to write this book about Dorothy because I'm an outsider in several respects. Um, but I reached out to Kate Hennessy, you know, who wrote this beautiful book about Dorothy and her own mother, Tamar, mm -hmm. uh, The World Will Be Saved by Beauty. And Kate Hennessy is the youngest grandchild of Dorothy Day. And I said, I asked her the same question I asked a lot of people who knew Dorothy and were very familiar with her work, which was, you know, what do you think people get wrong about Dorothy or what do you think people miss when they talk about Dorothy Day? And she told me two things. She said, one is people often forget she was a mother. They don't write about her being a mother, right? They write about her as this like single solitary activist person, but she was a mother. It's a huge part of her life. And Kate was sort of like, and no mothers have ever written about her. So that's, you know, hmm. interesting. And hmm. then the other thing Kate said was people just don't like to reckon with her writings in the Catholic worker paper. They don't like to reckon with her radical writings especially the early years of the catholic worker and and when she told me that i felt kind of good because like those are two things i was obsessed with already <laughs> so i was like okay we're on the right track here but her early issues of the catholic worker paper and if anybody is a nerd like me you can go online you can get access to the archives you can see them they are astonishing good writing but also just so incisive she was brilliant she was so aware of so many varying levels of things going on in the world um, and I learned a lot especially about labor you know politics because I didn't grow up with any of that stuff so it, I would just encourage anyone her writings are astonishing don't ignore them <laughs> wonderful wonderful it, uh you know it's funny that you said you know when you were growing up you took religion seriously and one of the funny things is, and that Dorothy Day was someone that kind of showed you a different way to be. But the funny thing is, and which obvious to all of us is, the thing everyone likes about Dorothy Day is she took religion seriously. It's just mm -hmm. a different way of taking mm -hmm. it seriously. Um, and I just wanted to know if you had any reflections on kind of that, if that's what 
you know, it's, it's, it is the, it seems to be the more authentic, the more, um, the more hardcore version of really taking religion seriously, not necessarily, uh, and you know, it's funny, it's not necessarily following all the rules, it's being unruly um, yeah. in order to follow the higher rules. Um, and uh, I think that's what's drawn so many to her. Yeah, I think she attracts, I think Dorothy attracts a certain kind of person to her writings. And I think it is people who take religion. And, you know, if we want to even broaden it out, we could say um, questions of ethics, people who are kind of concerned with ex uh, ethics and, and even like some existential questions about life and society. You know, I, I think people can sense a kindred with Dorothy in her writings there. Um, just to be really personal for a second, while I was writing this book, uh, it was a very tumultuous time for me personally, right? I It was during COVID. I was at home with my two kids who weren't going to school. Um, you know, I lived in Portland. I was involved in the Black Lives Matter protests. We had wildfires. Um, I was protesting Christians who were doing these huge worship events and saying, like, the government can't stop us, you know, from meeting. And um I really came to a crisis of faith. And one of the things is I started going to therapy for the first time. Shout out to therapy. And in therapy, it was I was able to kind of identify how I've been a hyper-religious person and how that's a coping mechanism. It can also be a trauma response. And in some ways, it can also lead to disordered thinking. And so it was interesting to be finishing this book, editing this book, while I was sort of dealing with, um, I do have what they call you know moral scrupulosity a religious OCD and and learning to kind of take that seriously has been really helpful for me and I thought it would give me some distance between me and Dorothy because I see evidence of some of these same things especially in her diaries mm -hmm. but it didn't I mean I still love her I still think she's just the most amazing person and I finally got the chance to go visit her bedroom that they've kept at Mary House in New York City just two weeks ago I got to go there and what really impressed me the most was how calm and beautiful and peaceful her room was it was just stuffed to overflowing with books just books books everywhere plants there's beautiful paintings there's religious you know figures on the wall and and I just thought this is how she did it. She was really intense. She was hyper-religious and she made space for beauty. She made space for rest. She made space for delight. Books were also her best friends like they are to me. And I really am grateful I got that chance to go to her room and see her space because otherwise I might have just said, wow, she was really intense and I don't know what to make of that. But seeing her room, it just opened up this view into her humanity and her love for beauty, which she wrote about all the time, but seeing it in person was really, really profound for me. That's great. You know, I was thinking as I was reading your book, and for me, it just got better and better because it was a different take on Dorothy. It was, it was personal, but you were also not only looking at her as a mother, which was powerful, and, and that was uh, really wonderful, but also as a woman. And when, when you were dealing with her abortion, in the early years, you know, I, I I just thought that was the most amazing take that you had on that, and so wonderfully described and handled that the what that played the kind of role that played in her life. That then the other episodes too, other things in her life, you came at from a different angle. You, you didn't, I, I mean, the book is not five hundred pages long, so you didn't literally try to retell everything in her long life. Um, so you selected the episodes. But they're wonderfully done, and there's quite a number of them I'd never read before. So that also kept pulling me right 
through the book. But your your sense of her as a woman, you know, is something that Catholics, they you know, they've got this blind spot about that, right? Not only Catholics, of course. Yeah, I mean, Pete, I don't know if you want to jump in on this, but one of the things while I was, you know, on the Zoom call about the canonization process, right, is like who gets to review all the documents, who mm-hmm. gets to write up her cause, um, and it's men, it's mm-hmm. men, it's mm-hmm. priests, and that does not sit well with me. I'm just going to mm-hmm. be honest. <laughs> and there's really beautiful people, right, involved in wanting to see Dorothy be a canonized saint and all this stuff. And I I totally see that. And if it gets more people to read her writings, grapple with her leftist politics, but it's hard because just, just that little fact, right? Oh, who gets to review this? Who gets to decide? It's, it's men, it's all men. And so that was kind of hard for me. (laughs) Totally. No. And it's, it is, uh, it is the single, I'll be vulnerable on my end. It is this, it is probably the single most, um, the single hardest thing in my sticking with the, you know, sticking as a member of the church mm-hmm. is that uh, that fact at the center of it. Uh, it's almost too small to say. It's too big to even even talk, you know, talk about as like, oh, uh, a little gripe I have with the church. Yeah. But um, it's um, that is a huge thing. And, you know, it gets that the fact that, you know, the church sees, you know, it has the fruits of its own alternatives inside of it already which are the fact that you know all these women are canonized said you know that you know and um and dorothy day hopefully eventually being one of them um better living up to the the central story of uh the church subverts the own rules of Mm -hmm. uh of the church uh the seeds of the alternative are already there uh you know it gets into this question that dorothy kind of lives her her life is kind of a critique of that i i sometimes grapple with with the church which is you know we have these two commandments that are supposed to kind of i i'm not a theologian i'm i'm just a i'm just a street catholic like elias as elias <laughs> has been trying to uh, popularize this phrase of uh, a a wannabe street catholic um of uh of we have these two commandments which is you know love god with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself that are supposed to kind of supersede and be the ultimate things at the front of our mind of this. And, you know, piety is one of them. The second one is neighborliness. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet I just feel, you know, there's just hardly, you know, the amount of neighborliness that deep neighborliness, radical neighborliness, Mm -hmm. the, the lack of, of reflection on that advice on that, um, encouragement in that institutions to channel that coming out of the church is and coming out of kind of you know broader christianity beyond the catholic church is is kind of just shocking to me and um that's a challenge to ourselves that's not me waving my finger at the others you know what can we do to to bring neighborliness as a virtue back um and dorothy's life was that and i just see i love that you know you seem to have uh uh, raised up the virtue of neighborliness as something important in your life. It's how you want to describe, uh, you know, partially this vision of Dorothy Day. I, I I don't know if you have any reflections, further reflections on neighborliness than what has already been said. Well, I will just say that I feel like you articulated something that I was never able to sort of say out loud, but part of the reason why I became obsessed with Dorothy Day is because there 
I literally had no other resources for how to be a neighbor in an unequal and unjust society, right? What I had been told, I was homeschooled. I only had like Christian history books, you know, like America's the greatest, like if some things are wrong or people are poor, it's their own fault, you know, all this kind of stuff. And, and so when I sort of was like, wait a minute, <laughs> Portland is not an easy place to be poor, non-white, non-Christian, like all these things. I was like, what do I do? And, and Dorothy was one of the few examples given to me. And I don't think there's, I don't think it's overflowing either in Catholicism or I would say evangelicalism or Protestant Christianity, you know, examples of truly how to be a neighbor that aren't sort of under this guise of, yes, you can be a good neighbor, but we are actually blessed by God to be the ones in charge. And that's how we'll affect the most change, right? It turns out everything in my life ended up being about power. White evangelicalism was all about power. And, and I just knew early on, I didn't want that. And so Dorothy was this, lifeline for me this raft for me and yet at the same time i i tried to live like dorothy i tried to live like shane claiborne you know he's like very popular in the evangelical movement um and now i'm like i'm just gonna be myself like i can't try and be like these people and that's something i think people can be a little wary about coming to dorothy day like is she gonna make me feel guilty do i need to be just like her and even a few years ago, I might have been like, well, try. Why don't you try? Just try to live like her, you know, and see what happens. And now I'm like, honor yourself and honor who you are, the desires you have for the flourishing of all people in your community. Right. And the more you know yourself, the better able, you know, the better you are able to engage with the movement and the work that's actually going on. And so I've been doing a lot of learning about my own autonomy, even as I just you know, admire Dorothy more and more. And I will say, writing this book, the biggest surprise to me was that it's not just about Dorothy. I, I really fell in love with Peter Morin, uh, yeah. you know, the co-founder yes. of the Catholic Worker Movement. And I wondered no. if you guys had any thoughts on Peter Morin. We agree with you. Could I tell a quick <laughs> Shane Claiborne story and oh, then yes. jump back on that? Yes. that. Well, I just willies up because it'll be weird to go back to it. And then I want to get into that and throw don't lie us on that. Yeah, Peter's important. I wrote, I wrote, a, I, I had a book come out two years ago. I wrote to Shane Claiborne. I said, um, I wrote an email. I blasted emails out to all these different folks in an earnest, authentic way, you know, people that I thought might like it, um, expecting no one to reply or expecting one line responses. Um, I wrote to Shane Claiborne with the book. Um, my my phone number is in kind of my email signature and I get a call and he goes, hey, you know, I just wanted to call to say I'm a total stranger. I'm not even evangelical. I'm not even, you know, in that world at all. I'm, I'm like very in the kind of Catholic world. And he just goes, I got your email and um, I just wanted to say it meant a lot that you wrote me this email and I'm going to be see if I can maybe get your book. I'm not. But it wasn't like, oh, let's do a book thing together. It was just. I might not be able to, but um, I just wanted you to know that I saw you in that email and um, I thought I would call you to say, um, to just say you are seen and, and I got to go. <laughs> like, oh, like, he let me say, anything. he let me say, you know, it wasn't like, uh, bye, but like he, he was clear just between things to a stranger. And it reminded me just to connect it to the theme instead of kind of my brush with this kind of evangelical celebrity of sorts, but it really was a thing of like that is a concrete 
lesson in neighborliness because mm. one thing in our internet age is we're just getting emails from everyone and when yeah. i get all emails from random people i'm all like oh, i gotta respond to this email mm -hmm. oh i guess let me write like some let me write some form thing back with two sentences and i and i'm never gonna forget that this person said i'm gonna take five minutes for a stranger and um just to make them feel seen in some similar process that they had gone through 20 years before or something and I love um, that. it was a yeah. it was a nice yeah. spirited thing um okay over to elias on on peter moore and, I, or other one more thing before we get to peter that. on neighborliness the extreme form of neighborliness which i know you practice dl and and it's it's what dorothy teaches people about and it shocks them it blows their minds it's called radical hospitality. Mm -hmm. That is extreme. You know, if, if you think about the way people are today about crime and homelessness and just general fear culture, imagine trying to be radically hospitable, you know, more or less really open kind of on a 24-hour basis. You, you mentioned in the book that Catholic worker houses were sort of 8 a.m. to midnight, and there was always soup and coffee, right? <laughs> <laughs> but the truth is all kinds of crazy people showed up at all times of the day and night and nobody asked for their ID or did you come from the social service agency? They just took you in, you know? I mean, that is just mind blowing. Anyway, any, any thoughts on radical hospitality these days? Yeah. I, I find that term is sort of like hard for me to think about right now because uh, you know, for many years, I just like really hated myself because I wasn't being as radical as I thought I should be, even though I was doing a lot and was burning myself out. Um, and I work with recently arrived refugee women and immigrant women for many, many years, taught English, did community work, did all this stuff and lived in low income housing. And I was just overwhelmed by stories of trauma, just trauma after trauma after trauma after trauma. And that's a part of radical hospitality is you sit with people, you eat with people, yes. you hear their stories. Um, but it was overwhelming, both their past traumas and then the trauma of being poor in the United States. And I couldn't fix these ginormous systems with my own two hands. And I wanted to. And so I think for me now, that term is really hard because um, there's always something more we could all be doing. And Dorothy's radical hospitality, the way I came to view it as I wrote the book was, um, it was out of desperation because the church was not stepping up, exactly. right? That's how the first Catholic worker house of hospitality started. Peter, Peter Martin kept saying, of course, of course, the priests will convert their, their parish housing. Like, there's men lining the streets in the Great Depression. How could the priests not? This is in line with their values. This is in line with historic Catholic social teaching. They're going to, no. Dorothy, they're going to do it. And and she was like, okay, let's see. Um, and, you know, they didn't. So Dorothy just went out. She she ends up doing things like pawning her typewriter and, and renting apartments and just using the paper to get funds because the religious institutions totally failed to show up in any exactly. way shape or form and so that's kind of how i want to frame the conversation about radical hospitality is we have yeah. to first say the christian institutions are failing our neighbors our most vulnerable neighbors they are failing them now we all get to decide what to do in response to that um but you can't just go straight to this happy story of you know, mm -hmm. people just mm -hmm. randomly started showing up and helping out. It's like, no, it was devastating to yeah. Dorothy, I believe, and Peter, although he, I, to my knowledge, he didn't write about that. But um, yeah, so that's kind of how I, I think of it now. Isn't Peter Moore an extraordinary 
figure. He, he's just he's like some sort of mythical character. And, and, and this is, the stories about him are just spectacularly funny. You know, he, he goes to meet with a professor. He's invited over to the house. He knocks on the door. You, you have the story in the book, uh, I believe. And the, and the woman in the house lets him in thinking he's going to fix the gas meter. So she sends him down to wait in the basement yeah. where the gas meter is until her husband, the professor, comes home. Peter waits patiently, doesn't complain. And, and finally, the man of the house comes home and realizes that their guest is down in the basement. You know, so, and, and he's always being mistaken for the caretaker or something. You know, it's just this wonderful. Or just a, a homeless person. Yeah. Yes, yeah, exactly. He looked like a homeless person. And, the yeah, holy yeah. fool. The holy mm-hmm. fool. But it's kind of like a character in a Bob Dylan song. He really kind of like is. appears in the night. <laughs> he really is. Yes. Disappears Dorothy, before morning. As you point out, Dorothy just had no end of praise and recognition for the importance of his role. Some people believe they should both be canonized. They should be canonized mm-hmm. together, mm-hmm. which is a really interesting idea, unless you believe that canonization is probably a bad idea. It reminds me a little bit of what Cornel West said about MLK. He said we'd reached the point where he's been so, sort of Santa Clausified, okay. you know? <laughs> yeah. So that's that's the downside of becoming a plasterer same right yes anyway about peter what what else did you take from reading about peter well pete did you have something you wanted to add to oh i had a different question but no different question let's let's stay on my uh i i would be insulting my co-namesake so (laughs) 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 i don't don't want to insult a fellow peter so yeah what else on peter morin yeah peter morin is such a wonderful figure he has not been studied or talked about as much as dorothy we need to work on that don't we we need to fix that we do yeah, I and I will just say my own bias coming into researching this book was that Dorothy talked about Peter a lot, but nobody else talks about Peter. And I was just like, yeah. is she doing that to get by in this like patriarchal framework of the Catholic Church? Was she saying, mm. oh, a man co-founded it with me? And, you know, she got into trouble. It's like, well, it's Peter and me together and I have a man, you know, and and he uh, you know, so I was like, this seems weird. I don't believe her when she says he's the true co-founder of this movement. The more I researched and the more mm-hmm. I read, mm-hmm. I just fell totally in love with Peter. And I became extremely convinced that he is a vital part of Dorothy's um, starting the Catholic worker movement. So you talked about my book is not 500 pages. I don't talk hardly at all about the latter half of Dorothy's life. I really yes. wanted to center this book in the birth of the Catholic worker movement, because it is a movement that transcends just Dorothy's life. And, and the paper is so important to me. I'm just obsessed with that paper. And, and, um, you know, Peter and his relationship with the paper was really fascinating to me too. Um, you know, I have a lot of neurodivergence in my own family. I'm also a recently diagnosed autistic. And so in Peter Morin, I found sort of a, a very familiar figure as far as someone who had a lot of neurodivergent traits and was very single-minded about the things he cared about and did not care about anything else. And, and I just think history is actually full of single-minded saints. And he really does remind me of St. Francis of Assisi um, and just a few other people, right. Who are kind of, everybody else thinks they're fools, but Dorothy just kept saying like, he's a saint. Like, you guys want to talk about saints like Peter Morin is a saint. And I think she was so grieved um, when he died and, and kind of people who knew him started dying to think that his memory was going to be lost. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think that's mm-hmm. why she mentioned it all the time. 
but he was brilliant. I mean, he was brilliant and seemed to have an encyclopedic knowledge of so many works of history, um, you know, the encyclicals, all these things. He was, he was a brilliant person. I, um, you know, there, the thing that first drew me to Elias's world, um, was, I, and maybe I'm getting this history wrong. It's fading into the past, but um, into the darkened past. But, um, uh, I think Elias first came up with this phrase, the Dorothy option. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, yes. and I, I just, that, that three words, it, it's my equivalent of the button, seeing the button um, <laughs> with the, with the coats on him. Um, those three words were, you know, I was very, taken by the bed I, I will admit it i think people don't want to admit it i was very taken by the benedict option not because i liked it as an option it's just that i liked a positive alternative yeah i like yeah. that someone said stop there's something we can do we have an option why don't we break the pattern of what we're doing and stop feeling bad about everything and go do this thing um you know in retrospect there's a lot of complexities to all that, that, mm-hmm. that um, you know, have gone in interesting directions. But um, what I loved was, okay, well, the problem with the better option is, you know, the biggest problem, aside from it being kind of premised on a lot of its premises being wrong, is that it's about, um, it's about what if you're abandoning the world. You're not yeah. just escaping mm-hmm. the world, you're abandoning the world. Um, mm-hmm. And you can't abandon, you, you can't say you and my 40 comrades are gonna go figure out the alternative and keep the flame alive and have everyone else kind of suffer in whatever you think is suffering out there. And then Elias came up with you know the Dorothy option and, and then it made me think, I don't know if I'm getting this right, Elias, but it seems like the alternative of the Dorothy option is the same spirit of the Benedict option of full-heartedly live the alternative yeah. But instead of doing it way over there, do it right in the middle of the city yeah. <laughs> and yeah. slowly, peacefully have the alternative in the face of the current system that you don't like mm-hmm. um, with a community of people that keep you strong and help kind of preserve that alternative. And so I've been always taken by Dorothy as just like we can live the world we already dream um, and continue to participate in the world as it is. And through that, that will change the world as it is a little bit closer to the world as we dream. And that's what I've been taken mm-hmm, by. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I was wondering, you know, when you say Dorothy Day's radical vision, what do you, how would you define that? And is that close to this idea that I just laid out? Um, or is that, is there something kind of different that I'm missing there in that, no, that, yeah. that I'm only seeing the vulgar surface level Dorothy Day instead of the the deep, true Dorothy Day. No, I love it. I love it. I think, you know, in her first issue of The Catholic Worker, she was just like, can you be a person of faith and agitate and complain and like just expose injustice and suffering? Like, can you do that? And her whole premise was, yes, yes, you can. You can be a person of faith and you can be radically against systems that oppress people today. And so I think that's kind of the basis of her entire framework. And she found a lot of solace in Peter Morin being like, yeah, that's literally what 
you know, the embodied works of mercy are all about. Like we, we just show up today doing what we can. And I think that's just so refreshing for me. You know, I grew up with people who are very similar to the Benedict option. You know, literally I was homeschooled, kept out of public school, like only go to Bible college, retreat from the world, create this little enclave. And, and the most tragic thing to me was realizing this kind of thinking is actually not about withdrawing from the world for forever. It's about withdrawing, shoring up resources, and then coming back to take power and being the people in power. And that's actually what I think we can see oh, with the author of the Benedict well, sure. Option. I think that's yeah, exactly sure. what he was doing the whole time. Yep. And so Dorothy, I, I think her anarchism, right, is what saved her from becoming a full-blown cult leader. And it's what has kept the movement going, just this distrust of power was so much a part of her leftist upbringing and so much a part Absolutely. of her faith That's and true. i'm like yep. let's talk about christian yep. anarchism because this gives me some hope for the future right when i'm thinking about myself what is my relationship i've i've been in the evangelical world and now i'm kind of obsessed with the catholic and like what does this mean for me and and i both Peter and Dorothy talking about having such a distrust for the state and institutions was actually allowed me to be like, I can be a person of faith who protests injustice, who's agitating for change, who's living this out. And so to me, that's like the part of a radical vision that stands out to me. But I just want people to read her and and tell me what stands out to them. Yeah. Because she says a lot of things. <laughs> yes. I, I better insert for the record here. I took Dorothy option from my good colleague, Mark Gordon. And he and I created a blog. Originally, it was a blog with two or three of his friends writing. And Mark sort of dropped off, and I kept the blog going. And then uh, Pete showed up, and we decided to create the Dorothy Option as a podcast. So that's that's the history of that. But I, I cannot take full credit, I'm afraid, much as I'm going to. <laughs> Thank you, Mark Gordon. Yes. <laughs> a great man. I hope, um, he, hear, I hope he hears this. Yes. He, he's a great fan. He's a great fan of Dorothy, too. Um you know, the other thing is um, the just the complexity of her and her impulses and her her cultural seriousness. You know, her managing editor, Jim Forrest, who just passed away just about a year or so ago, wonderful guy that created the Catholic Peace Fellowship. He writes a story about going to the Catholic Worker House in New York and for the first time, and he wanted to go catch an evening of clarification. And when he showed up, he discovered the program for the evening was Allen Ginsberg reading beat poetry. <laughs> and he said, I knew Dorothy oh. was serious, you know, and, and very devout. But he, he said, I didn't realize her faith had open borders. <laughs> yeah. I, that's such a beautiful story. And, you know, that is still kind of the vibe of the Catholic worker houses in New York is they're exactly. very centered in New York and in literary New York. Again, I, I was so taken by all the books she had on her shelves that she just read. She was such an intelligent and keen reader. And um, yeah, I don't know. Again, I feel like these are some of the things that saved her from from becoming a more insular your, person. Your, your book paints a, uh, something I hadn't thought about much, and you, do, you really alerted me to this. You, you paint a picture of the sort of extended family around her, these wonderful characters that were hanging out. I had never read the story of Mr. Minas, the Armenian <laughs> poet. Wasn't that a great story? Uh, tell us quickly, would you recount that little anecdote for us? 
Yeah, this is funny. So this is a, a picture into like um, my obsessive nature with things. I uh, was reading <laughs> Dorothy's diaries, which I would highly recommend people to read. And then I would sort of contrast them with the long loneliness just to see like, what did she leave out and what, you know, and it was all about, you know, the, the start of the Catholic worker movement and um, the story about this Armenian refugee. I mean, they didn't have terms like refugee back then, but that's what he was. Mm-hmm. Um Mr. Minas and he like carried around poetry all the time. He kind of looked a little a bit like Peter Peter Moore and he had wow. all these rumpled clothes and he kept his book of poetry and everything and and uh him and Dorothy would have like tea every evening and they were both reading Dostoevsky and and um he ended up losing his book of poetry and it was just like this horrible day at the Catholic worker. And he was one of the first people who really Peter brought him, you know, Peter met him in the square while Peter was trying to indoctrinate people. And Mr. Minas came and ended up staying there in the house with them. And everybody's frantically searching for it. Eventually this, you know, little boy finds it and brings it back. And everybody's like, poetry yeah. Yeah. yeah, the poetry notebook. And everybody's so excited. And they were like, we prayed to the saints. And this is what happened. And the little boy's like, but I'm an Episcopal. And it was was just like a very cute story. And underneath all that, Dorothy's writing about, you know, the chaos of the house of having an eight-year-old child. Um, They had a cat named Social Justice at the time. And these little things of like, Mr. Minas loved to eat his, you know, evening meal with mustard and pickles. And at the same time, they were using their neighbor who was a fascist. They were using his horse to deliver copies of the Catholic worker paper, which he was like, oh, it's Catholic. It must be fine. Cause you know, he was very pro what was happening in Italy. And Dorothy ended up being like, we named his horse social action and just laughed among ourselves all the time saying we were using a fascist horse to deliver our radical newspaper and just stuff like that. I could just like yeah. feel what it was like to be 1933, New York. Just a crazy worker. bohemian movie yeah. going on all yeah. the time, but you're right. It had a tragic dimension. The bad things happen. And the, the scale of the suffering was just horrendous, just amazing to imagine. But you paint some wonderful uh, pictures in it, for sure. Maybe I have uh, epistemic bias here of what I'm seeing um, and the networks I'm in, but it does seem like there's Dorothy Day interest explosion in the last 10 years. Hmm. Um probably more in the last 10 years than in, you know, the 90s or the 80s or something. Um, and I just, I, I, if you agree with that, what do you think has resulted in, you know, that increase uh, interest in Dorothy um, in recent years? Is it just that, you know, the internet has allowed people to learn about her when they wouldn't have before? Or do you think it's something specifically about our time? Oh, I'm I'm happy to hear you say that because like when my agent asked me, you do you want to write another book? And I was like, all I'm doing is reading this person Dorothy Day's diaries over and over and over again. Um, so it would have to be something about her. And my agent was like, Well, good luck selling a book about a person nobody knows about and nobody no, really cares really about. No. And um <laughs> unbelievable. I mean, not it, it wasn't so harsh as that, but that's kind of how I received it. And then again, when I did get a book contract with with Broadleaf books, um you know, my agent was like, you're very lucky to publish a book about this person because, you know, nobody at her agency had ever heard of Dorothy Day, all these things. And so I always come from it like everybody is obsessed with Dorothy. That's how I think. And now it's been interesting for me to be like, actually, they don't. And this is my third book. And it is hard. It's hard um, coming from evangelical land, right? If 
if I'm not willing to do the things you're supposed to do when it comes to talking about a famous historical religious figure, people get very uncomfortable. So I love to do this thing where I will go on to a place like Etsy or Pinterest or Instagram and I'll type in the name of like a famous Christian figure from history. Dorothy Day is one of them. Mother Teresa is one of them. And just see how they've been sort of commodified, see mm-hmm. what gets the most hits. And and it's interesting with Dorothy, it's just a, a, a collection of pretty um, benign quotes, right, that make it onto mugs, that make it onto t-shirts. And it's, uh, you know, when I, when you look at how the Roman Catholic Church and the, and the men sort of in charge, the priests in charge of the canonization process, like, again, this is me coming as an outsider. But when I watch the mass to send off her material to Rome, you know, I knew, I knew who Martha Hennessy was, I knew who some of these people were, but the the cardinal presiding over, I was like, I've never heard of, you know, Timothy Dolan. Let me Google him, you know, and I Google him and I'm just like, oh my gosh, uh-huh. like what is happening? And so um, it, I've just been sort of fascinated by sort of the people in power and what they're saying about Dorothy, which doesn't land with me at all. And then also like how women and sort of like Catholic Etsy as interested in Dorothy and I hope to find a few people like myself who are burned out hyper-religious folks who do care about justice and um, you know hopefully Dorothy can find them but I'm happy to hear you say that I do think when she's canonized it's going to be an explosion of interest in her but I'm already worried about how her life is being flattened out if if you know what I mean yeah that's the, the explosion of interest would be the upside that would be very good you know Peter and I talk a lot about social organizing and so on. And here's a question. I don't know if you got into the Catholic worker houses that much in your own research and background, but there's a question in my head I've had for a while, which is that I wonder if it is even possible today to create a Catholic worker house in the same way that she was doing in the 30s in New York. The world is different in a lot of ways. And so power is different. Power is distributed in different ways. And poverty is different, you know, and so on. So it makes me wonder, do we need a new model of the Catholic worker house? Is it a house? Or maybe it's a farm? Or maybe it's something else, you know? I don't know what it is. But have you any any thoughts on that just from what you've encountered in this this project? Yeah, I think, you know, the Catholic worker starting in 1933 in New York in the Great Depression is such a huge point because the suffering was so visible, mm-hmm. so vis- visible and, you know, just undeniable. And so, I mean, for a while now, I've thought things are inching towards that, where no matter where mm-hmm. you go, you can't really escape the fact that people are suffering under capitalism. I mean, Portland's a really interesting example. And, you know, we're electing city council officials and, you know, mayors who are like, we'll sweep all the homeless people, you know, and we'll make them all live in one internment camp. That's literally the plan now. And and so I'm like, ooh, this is a big issue. And, and, my children, especially my youngest child, brings it up anytime we see a tent city. He just says, why are we letting this happen? Who's letting this happen? Like, why can't everybody find a place to live? And I've been obsessed with housing for a really long time, and I do not have the answer. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I, I really, really, really stress about it. So I'm just like, there's got to be some paths forward. But sometimes I'm like, it seems like it has to get worse before it's going to get better, but we're definitely reaching these, uh, 
these periods of extreme inequality, right? That was similar to the Great Depression. But again, I'm I'm sort of coming at it from someone who didn't have a very intense uh, background with history. So I wonder if this resonates with both of you as you've studied this. Do you kind of think we're moving towards the sort of next Great Depression era in the United States? Yeah, no, it's hard. I, I really feel the, you know, I feel the hiddenness a lot. Like, I think there's... um yeah, there's like not bread lines in a clear place, but you know, there are these mm-hmm. 10 cities in the major cities. Um, but there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of hiding it. It's it's the same problem with unionization. It's that it's harder to unionize all the Lyft drivers in a city than it is to unionize all the people if they were showing up at the factory because yeah. you could stand at the gate and leaflet. Um, there's a second thing, which is we don't even have a sense of the public anymore, like the bowling alone phenomenon or the loss of third places and public places mm-hmm. that if there's no like where would Dorothy even, you know, leave like send the newspaper, let alone we don't have a culture of reading newspapers. So, so um, you know, or reading newspapers that are outside of your filter bubble um, of things. So even just kind of having new ideas come into people's heads in a public where kind of you see the you know sets of things that's all very hard um the the isolation and the loneliness on both ends so you have the people on the other side of the economic divide where there's even more isolation and loneliness and less ability to organize but then i think about jane adams kind of the um the protestant version of dorothy day you know with all of the uh uh mainline protestant uh turning down the dials on like energy and, and aesthetics and things like that, you know, uh, the slightly more buttoned up version, mm-hmm. you know, you, you couldn't do settlement houses today either no. because the, the upper class is too isolated even to organize together into a civic group to even coordinate, to do that type of thing. So we have our work cut out for us on um, rebuilding the, the, basic building blocks of the muscles of coming together to do anything, coming together to read anything, coming together mm-hmm. to come to a shared understanding, coming together around a shared reality that things are even going on without the weird house of mirrors spectacle bouncing in all directions that prevent us from even seeing what's happening. And so um, that sounds very hopeless, but I think there is a starting point, which is the near the local, the what's right in front of your nose. Um, And I think starting there is where you build it out. Um, And so um, that would be my take on that. You know, I don't have an answer either, but I will say, DL, your book does something really great here. And that is reading about Dorothy, the the sense that she had uh, around the importance Mm -hmm. of what's called friendship with the poor. Mm -hmm. Not just feeding the poor, not just knowing about the poor, not just voting for programs, but friendship, embodied friendship with the poor day to day. She has a wonderful comment somewhere about living in, in Catholic worker houses, which is that I do penance through my nose daily. Bed bugs, you do a great job on this. You really capture just the chaos of that life, you know. But there's something about that that's so profound and touching. And that friendship with the poor, the idea that the rich could learn from the poor and so on. It's very powerful. It comes through wonderfully in your book, and I hope your book is an instrument to awaken people around such ideas. 
Thank you. I thank you so much. And I, I will say like my life has been absolutely changed by being in relationship with people experiencing poverty and people yep. who are really different than me. Um, and, you know, I do live in a neighborhood on purpose that it is home to low income families primarily. And I think being in relationship with them, the biggest thing, and I'm, and I'm trying to view it as a gift is I am overwhelmed. I am overwhelmed by the struggles of our systems and how they dehumanize and exploit people. And that's okay. It's okay to just say it that honestly, uh, because people in poverty are also overwhelmed. And I agree. I, well, I love the humility both of you have shown. And I think it's really important for me coming from white evangelicalism, where I was trained and taught like, I have the right answer to do everything. You know, right now at this point, I'm like, I don't know what to do. I'm going to listen to the people who are most impacted and I'll just do what they want me to do. Like that's Mm -hmm. kind of my new framework. And I see that some in Dorothy too. It's just like, well, let's just listen to people and we're not going to force them to take a bath and we're not going to do any of that. Let's just listen to them and try and do what they tell us to do. And I'm like, that's the kind of humility. I want to see more people coming out of white evangelicalism, you know, exhibit. You know, one of the things that's always a challenge with these transformations is there is a often a like perverted and shallow form of the good thing that is drawing the energy that we need um, away. And so one of the things, you know, it's it's a pet peeve of mine is kind of volunteerism culture um, and charity culture is like Mm -hmm. taking some of its craven, but I think a good amount of American volunteering and charity is, is a good impulse. Um, And I actually think I'm not kind of doing the normal socialist thing of saying like, don't do charity, just do politics. I actually think the impulse of literally helping people is good. The problem is it's just so formalized, bureaucratized and given at distance Mm-hmm. That the dominant metaphor is like, I, I even think the core language used with it, like giving back, it's weird. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, that's a bizarre thing. Um, uh, you know, uh, serving is, is seems a little bizarre too. It's like, it's like, oh, I will get off my pedestal to go give back and serve because really? I'm so lucky or something. <laughs> Guilt alleviation. And I think like the dominant metaphors that Dorothy kind of taught me from getting into her work was it's more of a a metaphor of you are distant from your neighbors you should become close to your neighbors this is what like francis you know pope francis always talks about it's like um it's it's about social networks becoming frayed and becoming Mm -hmm. retied together Mm -hmm. um it's it's about you are missing out on this because you are segregated it's about reintegrating and then out of that comes all the things that need to happen if you approach being close with maturity and open heart, a spirit of equality, a spirit of mutuality. Um, and, you know, there's all these hard things with that, but it will flow from that. Whereas, you know, I, you know, the, the shelter in my town, they have this rule where you're not supposed to say anything about yourself to the people hmm. that are in the shelter, you know, give your first name, but don't you dare give your last name or tell them anything about your family. And, um, and, um, or, you know, that you have a life outside of your time in the shelter. And I know why they do that. It's it's to protect people about having boundaries and that's really important and things like that. And But it's kind of missing the point, which is the reason, you know, a huge reason people are homeless is because they're segregated from 
relationships um, in the main social network of the place. And how are you going to have that without a little bit of people who mm -hmm. have the capacity to be vulnerable to enter into those relationships? So I know long-winded way of saying that, but that's one thing I've learned uh, in this uh, too. I love that. And I actually do not have a lot of like Dorothy quotes that I think about a ton. I, I like her writing all as together. You know what I mean? I like reading her whole articles, but the one that always comes to my mind and that I'm like, should I make a t-shirt for myself that says this? Maybe I will, but it's charity is a word to choke on. And I just wow. think about that all the time. Just like that's it great. chokes in the mouth that. of the person receiving it. You know what I mean? Like that's who she was thinking. Like, to people who are on the receiving yeah. end of it, it chokes them. This the entire framework, wow. you know, upholds these systems that are failing people. And yet, you know, her whole thing with religion before she converted was like, from what I see, y'all are using your religion to actually make you yourself feel better mm -hmm. and to remove you from the world and you never have to engage with it. That's and then they use charity as this one way to engage uh, and then they feel good about themselves, but the person on the receiving end, like the, it, it feels like choking to them. So I think about that phrase all the time. Maybe I'll make a t-shirt. I don't know. I love that. That's great. That's great. <laughs> Neil, I'm going to ask you, just give us a sense of where, where has this book taken you so far? What do you think it may be taking you? What kinds of encounters and conversations and i would love to hear you tell us that all sorts of interesting new things are opening up here as a result of this where's, where's this going well it's funny because i'm in i'm like sort of in a period of my life where i am transitioning and kind of understanding how um, impacted i was by my childhood and the religious indoctrination sort of inherent in white evangelicalism so you know i never got to choose what to study. I just had to go to school to be a missionary. Like that's what you do if you take it seriously. And so mm -hmm. now, you know, Dorothy and, and immersing myself in every book she's ever written, all the books written about her, you know, I got to read Studs Terkel and his oh, oral yeah. histories of the Great, Great. Depression. Heart. Great. I mean, I didn't use a word from that book and I read it cover to cover. And so I'm just... I really enjoyed writing the book. I, I, she was my special interest. It's still so important to me, but I'm, I'm one of those kind of people where I'm like, once I've written the book, I'm like, oh, I'm thinking about something else now. <laughs> so it's interesting. And I have no desire to be um, like to do public speaking or like paid appearances or, yeah. or yeah. write op-eds about if Dorothy should be a saint or not. Cause all that would get published and all that would get the book out there but that's not really where my brain's at and it's not really where my heart's at and like, my main goal was I wanted to do right by Dorothy I was very stressed out about that and I ended up just meeting the most amazing people who knew her in real life and the two people I want to shout out the most are Brian Terrell who mm -hmm. is you know has been with the Catholic worker for a long long time he mm -hmm has like an encyclopedic knowledge of everything Dorothy's ever written and was invaluable to me. And then Robert Ellsberg was just so yep. gracious Great. and is kind of like risking himself to write the foreword for my book because, you know, not everybody's into it. In fact, there's like a, hmm. there's a local new Catholic worker around and, and they're much more traditional. What would you call them? the trads, I guess yep. a bit. Yes, and so exactly. I, I had one of them read my manuscript and they were just like, <laughs> you know not not super into it so so i'm like oh. people risked for me and i i just i cannot express how generous every single catholic worker i've talked to has been and again going back to canonization 
on this Zoom call, they're basically like, the best way to make sure Dorothy's life does not get flattened out by this whole process is to look to the Catholic worker. Look to the Catholic workers of history. Look to the ones that are continuing now. And, and I just thought that was really great advice. So I hope people continue to do that. Oh, lovely. You know, you also gave me a quote I had not come across from Kate Hennessy. I want to see if Pete spotted this too. To have known Dorothy is to spend the rest of your life wondering what hit you. <laughs> Amazing. I love that. Can I give you one more that I love? Uh, I, I don't know that I've ever seen this written. Someone told me she said this. She was in a meeting um, in which she was talking about pacifism where that came up. And someone said, well, no, we Catholics, you know, we have we have just war theory. And Dorothy sighed and she said, you know, there is no such thing as just war. There's just war, putting the dots in between the words. <laughs> There's just war. Oh, Dorothy. <laughs> Can I tell you guys a funny story about your podcast? Because oh, sure. when yes, I great note to end on. When I was trying to get the cover for this book, you know, it was really important to me. Uh, I know where to, this is going. To yep. put some things, you know, to make it very clear. Um, you know, I was like, if this offends some really pious <laughs> Catholic women and they don't buy the book, that's great. That's sort of my aim. You know, yeah. I just want people to know what they're getting into going into it. So I was communicating with the archivist of the Dorothy Day, you know, collection at Marquette University. And I just said, are there any pictures of Dorothy Day smoking? Like, I haven't found any of them. And he was like, I don't think so. So then I sent him your thumbnail for your podcast. I was like, what about this one? And he was like, oh, that looks Photoshopped. Mm -hmm. um, I think it and is. That's all he said. And I was like, so that means it's not real? Because from everything I've read is she smoked constantly, yeah, you know, yeah. until her mid 40s. Yeah. Like, how is this? So I eventually emailed Kate Hennessy and she's like, oh, it's not photoshopped. Like, it's it's a real picture. And she just sent it to me five minutes later. And the actual picture, you know, if if it's full, if you zoom out, she's wearing it. she's wearing a medallion of the Pope while smoking. Huh. <laughs> And it is incredible. And uh, for the, for whatever reason, on the cover of my book, I don't have any control of this. They took out the medallion and they stylized it into mm. sort of a cartoony mm. thing. But I just thought it was so funny. Like, I was like, was the archivist trying to brush me off a little bit? Like, we don't have any pictures of Dorothy smoking. I don't know where any are. He really didn't give me any help. Like, Kay Hennessy, five minutes, like, oh, yeah, we got we got a lot. Here's one. And it was so perfect. That's, That's great. great. <laughs> That's great. Lovely. I love that. Wonderful. <laughs> Neil, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on and talking to us. Uh, the book, again, is Unruly Saint, Dorothy Day's Radical Vision and its Challenge for Our Time Times. The author is D.L. Mayfield. Highly recommended. Thanks so much for having me. It was really nice to nerd out about Dorothy with people yeah, who also love her. For sure. <laughs>